All right, all right. Hey, glad to see you as uh, we kind of kick off this series. I want to say hello to other WNC campuses and the, uh, the beautiful 828. Uh, doesn't matter where uh, the speaker is, it matters where uh, the Word of God is. And so, wherever, whatever you have, whether it be your uh, Bible in your lap or a Bible app or whatever it is, if you would just take that. And again, we're going to be in Matthew 17 today. Open it up together. Let me give you two things that. Uh, we talk about all the time when we uh, when you're coming from different places. We ask you to stay where you are, serve where you live, be the church in your community. And uh, sometimes though we do things that are corporate together. And a couple of those things are coming up. One of them is actually this Tuesday. If you're a young professional, we've got a uh, service just for you that happens every month called Vertical, and it'll be this Tuesday. You can find out more information in the lobby. And then in the very start of February, into January, start of February, uh, there's something for the middle school and high school that is called Wake Weekend. And parents, please. Make sure, make sure that your high schooler, your middle schooler is uh, signed up for that, all right? You will not regret it at all. It'll be a blessing to you, be a blessing to your family. And so here's where we are. We're in a kicking off a series again uh, called Mountains Can Move. And mountains in the Bible are often pictures, they're metaphors oftentimes for things in our life that seem, uh, they seem unchangeable, they seem immovable. Most of the time, they've been there for not just weeks and not just months, but oftentimes years and generations. And after a while, you think about them, you pray about them, but because they're imposing, you know it's not God's best for you, but it doesn't seem like it is ever going to change. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be dealing with that, and we'll actually be dealing with five specific ones starting next week. But today actually going to start a passage that God laid on my heart probably two months ago, sitting in a recliner in my living room about my own personal family. And I'm like, this is the big picture. This is the picture of what we've got to understand. And as we think about it, this uh, rock that is in your seat, just kind of hold on to it. You might have come in and thought, man, what do we do? We go Old Testament and we're like stone people today or what? But no, it's not. It's not what we're going to do. Just hold on to it. Because here's what I want you to picture, and you'll see also some markers underneath probably every other chair, and maybe early on in the message, maybe later on in the message, maybe at the response time. Uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to think about the greatest area of need in your life, the greatest area of desperation in your life, the greatest area of heaviness in your life right now. And then I'm going to explain based on this passage, we're going to take a small step of faith and say, God, I'm going to give you this area. I'm going to rededicate this area to you. And I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, for some of you, it's like the secret habit that you cannot break. For others of you, it's the prodigal that has not come home. For others of you, it's the marriage that is seemingly broken. Others of you, it's a health issue. Others of you, it's a lost loved one that you've prayed and prayed, and you're kind of sick and tired of praying because you haven't seen anything at all happen, all right? This is, a, this is a very small, little, small token, and what I'm going to show you is small decisions. Small decisions can have massive implications. As a matter of fact, of the thousands and thousands of things that are going to go on this week, most of those are going to be impacted by a small decision that you and I make today. 
Now, we know this from just common experience. I could give you 100 different descriptions, but I'll give you one if I go back 30 years or so when I met Lori Masters, all right? When I was uh, in seminary, I just started seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and she was in nursing school over at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, so when I meet Lori, I, I saw her actually lead worship. She was up on the platform. Her dad's a minister of music. Uh, before I started serving my first church, I went to this church in the west part of Fort Worth, and then the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen stood up there and led worship. I still remember the song. It was Softly and Tenderly. It's, it's a hymn. Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. And I was like, he's calling me right now to ask that girl out. That's what he's asking me to do. Man, when she's like, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling, I was like smitten. I was like, man, that is by far the most godly, gorgeous gospel fox I have ever seen. That's who I was looking at. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't two weeks later, my older brother was in town and I was kind of like, I'm not sure she's really interested. And he looked at her and she said, bro, you're going to marry that girl. Promise you. But two weeks into it, I hadn't even taken her out. You were going to marry that girl. Well, truth be known, I tried to talk to her and man, she just wasn't having any of it at all. I was trying to put on my best swag, and it's like nothing, crickets. I mean, I go up there, and she would just, you know, a lesser man would have thought she wasn't interested, okay? And I was like, no, she's just shy. She's just got to be shy. But bottom line is, I, I had a built-in advantage because I was actually, even though I was only, this isn't creepy, I was only two years older than her, but I was actually her connect group teacher, all right? Some of you, I can get creepy if you're, but anyway, I was like two years older. I just started seminary and she was in college. So I got to see her every single Sunday and man, nothing like praying for your lesson when you know your future wife's going to be in the crowd right there. But finally I was like, man, I just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I didn't ask her out. And so I'm walking out into the parking lot there at Birchman Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. And some says like, you turn around, turn around and go ask her out. It's like, I don't want to turn around and go ask her out. Just go ask her out just a little bit. And so I actually made the decision. I turned around, walked back in there, and the rest, as they say, is history. And now we've been married 30 years. we got two sons. we got a granddaughter who is coming in May. So we're fired up about all of that. But I'll, all that to say, huge implications, huge implications that changed my life, changed my family's history, because of one decision to simply turn around and go back. And what I'm gonna show you is, I'm gonna show you a guy in the scripture who made one decision. He made one choice of faith. It wasn't even great faith, as you'll see. It wasn't like this awesome, believing guy. It was a small decision of faith to say, I'm gonna give you the biggest thing on my heart, the heaviest thing, the mountain in my life that I cannot move, and then I'm going to ask you to pray, God, what you did for that man 2,000 years ago, I'm praying that you would do that for me. Over the next six weeks, would you move that mountain or at least let me see it start to rumble just a little bit? So Matthew 17, context is this. It's right after the, what's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Mount of Transfiguration is when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, takes them up on the mountain. They get to see, in some ways, the glorified Christ. He kind of removes a little bit of his humanity. They got to look in there, and he says, listen, hey, it's not about Elijah. It's not about the prophets. It's not about the law of Moses. It's about my son. It's really about the gospel. 
And so I'm going to read the text through, and then we're going to just basically take a few principles from this. And then uh, if you're like, man, I wish, I had a, wish we could sing another song, you're going to have another chance where we're going to actually worship uh, at the end. We're going to worship in music at the end. There's nothing like worshiping in music to build your faith. And so we're going to do that at the end, but let's jump into God's word. Here's the whole story. It's not very long, so every word's important. Matthew 17, verse 14 says, And when they came to the crowd, again, they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They've come down from the mountain, and that's what a lot of times happens. You're up on the mountain, you just had an amazing experience, and then you find yourself down in the valley, and that is what happens here. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him. Um, Well, I'll tell you that part in a second. Verse 15. It said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. That's a pretty big deal back then. There were open fires everywhere. They lived right by the Sea of Galilee. So you got a son that's having those kind of seizures. You're talking about scars, crying, and a lot of pain. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Jesus up on the mountain, like, well, hey, I'll go to his workers And I brought him to the workers, and they couldn't do anything. We'll see why in a few minutes. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long, he's actually quoting the book of Deuteronomy, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And here's what he says. He says, bring him here to me. Now, loved ones, you see a number of other times in the scriptures where he heals at a distance. He doesn't have to have the son come to him in order to heal him. He's asking the man to take a step of faith to say, I want you to bring that thing that you have not been able to change and you've done all you can. I want you to bring it to me, just like I'm going to ask you to do. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately because they're kind of embarrassed. Hey, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. And you came up here, boom, and it's done and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. You're actually going to see three types of faith in this story, all right? You're going to see no faith at all, none at all. The word for faith in Greek is pistuo, okay? No faith means apistuo, means you have, you're without faith, you're void of faith. Then you're going to see little faith. It's like, okay, you showed a little faith coming to church today, all right? That's a little bit of faith. And then you're going to see what's called mountain-moving faith. And it's not about how much faith you can muster up. It's about the object of your faith. Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, very, 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 very small, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible with you. Let me just start off with this. Oftentimes, when God is going to move something in your life that you have somewhat deemed unchangeable, maybe you did pray about it for a while, but now the tears have dried up, the heart has grown cold, you feel like this is just the way it's going to be, oftentimes what he does is this. He will start with our desperation. He'll start with our desperation. A man comes up to him, kneels, and said, now here's what I want you to understand. This 
This passage is not only in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's also in Luke, all right? So the same episode, the same timing, everything is there. Now, if you're new to Bible study, here's the way I can explain it this way. When you talk about parallel passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of them. They're called the synoptic gospels, okay? But they have different authors and to some degree different audiences that they are addressing. And so think about it this way. These different accounts of the same account would be like, okay, like Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning of this week, all right, you're going to get up and you're going to watch the highlights of how Clemson beats LSU. That's what you're going to watch, all right? You're going to flip on the television and go like, hey, Clemson beat LSU by 15 points. That's awesome. But based on the channel you watch is based on the highlights that you get to see. If you watch ESPN, they might show you a bunch of stuff about Trevor Lawrence throwing like four touchdown passes and how awesome that is, all right? If you go over to, let's say, Fox Sports 1, they might show something different. They might show like the Clemson defense just hammering Joe Burrow, something like that. But it's the same game, all right? Same game, same results, and in a much greater way, that's like it is when you look at different accounts of the same account, And so I'm going to be using all those. I've read them all so many times these last six weeks. And so here's a couple of things you can know about the man. The man brings his son. One of the other ones says that it was his only son. Another one says that he had this issue. He had these problems. He had this health issue. He had this disease. He had this, it says, since childhood. Now, there's a word for childhood infancy like newborn and there's a world for childhood and they're different. He uses the word for childhood here. What does that mean? It means you got to see the man, okay? The man is not some fictional character in a galaxy far, far away. This is a real man and he loves his boy and there's no pain like kid pain. And when you have kid pain, you do whatever you've got to do to get him, get him the help he needs, And so they had a few good years, maybe two, maybe three, and then something started to happen. Maybe he started to cough, and then he began to have the seizures. Something began to happen to his boy. And he did everything he could. I mean, that's what you do, right? I mean, parents, that's what you would do. You would take him to the best doctors. You probably slept at the foot of his bed in case maybe he had a seizure in the middle of the night, and you don't want to be in the next room. you got to be there because you got to do something. You'd probably you'd sell the house, you'd sell the car to pay for whatever is necessary. Why? Because that's your boy, that's your only child, and it's happening, and you do all that you can. You ask your connect group, please pray. You held him a bunch of times because, man, if he's throwing himself in the fire, that guy is in pain. He's got a lot of burns. He's got a lot of scars. One of the, Mark's accounts says he was simply, it was destroying him. And what you have to get over and what the hardest part is, is how long is this going to go on? I mean, that's the hardest part of a trial, isn't it? It's not the darkness of the trial. It is the duration of the trial. If you know that, you know what, you can put up with almost anything. If you know, you know what, in six months, this thing's going to be over with. But if six months goes on and 10 months goes on and two years goes on and five years goes on, What's the Proverbs say? Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What does that mean? It means it's hard to hope. It's hard to hope. 
And so here's a couple of things you might think about because that's the hardest part. Let me give you a couple of things about hope. First of all, it is a hassle to hope. I'm, I'm gonna admit to you right now, it is a hassle to hope. When you think, I don't think God's ever gonna change this. When you start getting, I don't think God's ever gonna change this. That's a hassle. You pray for 20 years for your dad to come to Christ and there's no sign, no interest, nothing but stay out of my way. That's a hassle. When you sit there and you got a prodigal and you took her to 100 vacation Bible schools, they went to every wake weekend. They put that stick in the fire at student camp. And now there's like zero interest in one place when he's talking to Jesus, it says he is destroying us. In other words, it wasn't just a him problem, it was a family problem. It's like, you know what? This whole thing is destroying our family. And you go down, you got a marriage right now and you're sitting here and you saw some commercial and you know what? It's like, man, I'm in a loveless marriage. I'm in a loveless marriage and we just been on two separate tracks for 10 years just trying to get the kids raised. But man, as soon as that last one walks across the stage with a diploma, I'm out of here because nothing is going to change. He will never step up to the plate. She will never show me any respect. Nothing is going to change. Why? Because it's a hassle to hope. It's a hassle. You tried, you tried, you tried, and now it's just, no, it's just a hassle. And I'll tell you, the second thing it is about hope is it is, it is big time. It is hard to hope. It's hard to hope, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to hope. Why? Because you have to work at hope. You don't have to work at doubt. Okay? It's hard to hope. You don't have to work at negativity. As a matter of fact, you can be at church even today, and you'd be singing these songs. And I mean, the one that I've been singing for three or four months now, I mean, I love this. It's like, I'm going to sing a Y'all didn't do that great, by the way, here at Arden, just so you know. I mean, y'all didn't do that awesome. When they had that echo action, I was like, man, come on, folks. But when they had that action, I'm going to give you another chance. But I'm going, to sing, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. And then they got that echo, and it's like louder than the voices of unbelief. I mean, that's, you get all that, and you're like, I'm full of faith. And then you walk out, and even in the lobby at church, you run into some, you know, negatron. It's like, well, you know, you know, that might just be God's will. It's not God's will, okay? You're like, it's not God's will that my lost kids stay lost. It's not God's will that my marriage dissolve. But it's hard. It's hard to hope. And I tell you what, here's the one that I've got it. I'm try, I wanna, I've been praying. I gotta, you got to peel this back today. But why? Because it hurts to hope. It hurts, it hurts to hope. You know what hope says? Hope says I, I need something and I don't have it. I need something and I don't have it and I need it. I've got needs and it's, as time goes by, the heart gets hard, the tears dry up. And what do you do? And do we all do? It's been said a hundred times, but what happens after a while is we go from hoping to just coping. So we do. We just go from hoping, you know, I'm full of hope, I'm full of faith. And that's that's what we understand. That's biblical faith. Biblical faith is not I hope so. Like, man, I hope the Panthers win the Super Bowl. You know, that's not it's not that kind of hope, all right? Hope in the Bible is, you know what, it's going to happen. I just don't know when it's gonna happen, okay? I understand the finish line already. I can't see it quite yet, but I know it's there. I mean, it's, what came to mind is there was this uh, lady, true story of a lady who was the first lady to actually swim the English Channel. Her name was Florence Chadwick. And so 
1952, she decided she is going to swim from the Catalina Islands to the California coast. That's 26 miles. I get tired driving 26 miles. She's going to swim it. No woman had ever done this at all. She started her first time. It was foggy. She is in the water for 15 hours. Uh, Yes, 15 hours. She's like, I want to quit. I want to quit. I want to quit. Her mom's in the guide boat. The mom's like, go on. You can go. You can go a little further. And so it encouraged her for a little bit. She swam for another hour. And then finally, she's like, I got to quit. I got to quit. And she got back in the boat. It wasn't five minutes later before that fog sort of parted. And she saw that she was no more than a half a mile from the California coast. She said, I'm going to do this again. Two months later, she starts it again. She starts it again. She not only breaks the woman's record, she breaks the men's record by two and a half hours. And they're like, how did you do it? How come it was so much easier the second time than it was the first time? And here's what she said. She says, I was ready this time, and it's real simple. I kept a picture in my mind of the shoreline. Even though I couldn't see it with my eyes, it was ever before me. I never lost sight of the California shoreline, and so I felt like I was always closing in on it. As long as I lived for the picture in my mind, I could keep slogging through the fog of my challenge. That's what God wants you to do today. He wants you to come back from the coping and come back to hoping. And when you look at the, when you look at the man here, The father apparently hears somehow that Jesus is in town. The miracle worker has come down from the mountain. He probably heard some rumors. Man, there's some rumor that he actually raised some little girl from the dead. There's some story about him feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. Man, there's even a story that it was real stormy and windy. He got up and preached like a four-second sermon and everything changed. And so what does he do? He thinks maybe he can do something for my little boy. And so initially he brings him, and it says they could not. His request is not fancy. Matthew simply says, he said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Luke says, I beg you to look at my son. Mark, by the way, gives you a little more insight when he says this. The man said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us talking about his family, on us and help us. That's a great prayer, by the way. Jesus says, if you can, don't miss that. He says, hey, if you can, would you have compassion and have mercy on us? And Jesus says, if I can, if I can, if I can. And that's when Jesus says that awesome thing. He says, listen, all things are possible for one who believes. That's when the dad cries out that famous prayer, probably the most honest prayer in the Bible. And he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe. In other words, I do believe, but there's this area in my life, in this case, his son, that I'm having a hard time believing that you're actually going to do something about. And what happens is he starts in that area of your life and your desperation. Why? Because we are do-it-yourself people, aren't we? I mean, we are. We are Americans, all right? We're Americans. We're not Americans. We're Americans, all right? So I can do it. We got a book for dummies on everything. There's even like a book for how to know God. I mean, book for, I mean, there's all that stuff. We think, here's what we think. We think, bottom line, with enough time and enough skill and enough knowledge, I can do anything. 
But your desperation says, you know what, I can't do it. I've tried, I've failed, I've tried, I've failed, and I just can't do it. It's great when it comes to fixing up your home. You do need to do everything you can to fix up your marriage, but there comes a point in time when it gets real dangerous because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And at times, what he's got to do is say, I'm going to let you get to your point of desperation until you finally come to the end of yourself. When you become to the end of yourself, you've actually become at the very beginning of actually having God move your mountain. And it starts off, though, it starts off with desperation. And uh, I will just say this. Let me just make one little commercial here because I know some of you are kind of freaking out just a little bit. Uh, You read the story and you're like, okay, come on. I, I was with you until you read the part about the demons, okay? I mean, you're reading this thing about the demons, and what are you going to tell me next? Like, Casper Friendly Ghost. I mean, you kind of had some education. You're supposed to not really believe that stuff. In the Bible, it is true that there is more of that activity during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, which would make perfect sense, correct? I mean, that is like God's plan for redemption is coming right there in front. So it would make sense that there's maybe a little more activity of that. But please hear me. If you don't have room in your theology for spiritual warfare, you better make some room. You better make some room. Let me just ask you some questions. Anybody in here struggle with addictions? You don't have to raise your hand. I'm just saying anybody in here struggle with, you know, pills, porn, something like that? And you go on to the meetings. And now listen, I'm pro-meeting. Great, go to the meetings. We need the meetings. But even then what happens is it's like, man, I'm never going to do that again. And you go right to it again. Why? Because there's some darkness that is overwhelming your sense of I shouldn't. You think that's just a strong self-will? You got a marriage that's on the rocks. Do you honestly think that the only issue you've got is communication? If I can just have communication skills better, this whole thing's going to be better. Now, what you need is the power of the resurrected Christ and the gospel to come into your marriage, all right? You don't have communication issues. You got gospel issues, all right? You got Jesus issues in there. You think you're prodigal? You think all that is is a series of maybe unwise life choices? Bible says, actually, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, You don't think he's trying to destroy your marriage? You don't think he's trying to destroy your family? Somewhere in your theology, you just got to make some room. Some of you are struggling with shame. Maybe years ago you had an abortion, and every time you come to church, even though we preach the gospel and how your sins, though they are scarlet, can be white as snow, and there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, every time God's about to do a work in your life, what happens? It's like the, the voice of unbelief and shame shouts down all that God wants to do in your life, which by the way, we're going to look at specifically soon. So here's what I want to put this. He often starts with your desperation, but then hear hear this. He responds to your and my active faith. That's what he responds to. Before we look at it with a dad and then before we look at it in ourselves, faith is huge in this passage, obviously. I mean, you see faith, and I know faith is, we're going to talk just a little bit about faith. We wish we had more time about it, but just understand faith. Faith is huge in this passage. You see no faith, you see little faith, you see mustard seed faith, you see mountain moving faith. Faith is huge in the Bible. We could go on and just honor faith, faith. Just type in faith in your search engine sometime and just see how much it comes up. It's obviously huge in the Bible. So let me give you a quick overview. The foundational 
truth of the Bible is the glory of God. That's the foundational truth that, guess what? We were created for him. He loves us. It's not about us. That's the foundational truth of the Bible. It's the glory of God. That's what everything is made for. Everything is going toward. The central theme bringing him glory is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on a cross 2,000 years ago. What brings God glory the most is the son of God living the life we were supposed to live and then dying in our place, dying the death that we deserve, and then God raising him from the dead. That brings God glory. But when you look at the whole part of the Bible, the urgent message of the Bible, that the benefits of this redemptive, almighty, all-caring, compassionate God is accessed by faith. It's accessed by faith. Biblical faith, biblical faith is an internal conviction that shows in some external action. Let me say it again. Biblical faith, biblical faith is an internal conviction that will show up in an external action. It'll show up here in a few minutes. Now, I got, I got to share this part with you because in today's Christianity, particularly here in the West, though not exclusively, we have let the faith teachers and all of the extreme unbiblical prosperity teaching cheat us out of the power of biblical faith. We have been so scared to abuse faith and take things out of context, we're not even really a people who walk by faith anymore. When is the last time you even got halfway out on a limb and said, if God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen? If the Holy Spirit came out of your house, what would change? Now, again, I'm going to be clear. Our faith is not some formula. God is not a genie in a bottle who you rub and he's obligated to answer you. He's not a vending machine God, all right? He's not a formula, all right? He's a father who loves us and is all-knowing and is infinitely caring on that. Please hear me, though. What you see in this story and contextually in the other stories is this. Biblical faith is not faith in faith. It's not faith in how much faith you can work up. As a matter of fact, he's going to go to the extreme to say a tiny little itty bit of faith in the resurrected Son of God dwarfs huge faith in all the idols of this world. You just, you, so it's not about your faith as much as it is in the object of your faith. So let me just give you a couple of these here. Verse 17 says, O faithless generation. That means no faith. That's probably a reference to the scribes. What's amazing about the scribes is these people knew the Old Testament that also talks about Jesus. They knew the 322 prophecies that talk about Jesus that were fulfilled by Jesus and Jesus is standing 10 feet away from them and they don't even know it. That would be a picture of a religious person. Some of you are here today. You grew up in church, but the locomotive of God's grace has never impacted you in such a way as that the resurrected Christ became your Lord. All right? You're religious, but you don't have a relationship with him. You know that. You know that. Because all you got to do is read like one chapter of the Bible and like, you know what, my, my, my life doesn't even resemble that. My family doesn't resemble that. There's no, that is simply culturally faithless. Then another one, he says, you have little faith. This is actually the disciples. He's actually telling the disciples, you have little faith. You are coping. You are not hoping. Now, again, a little faith is better than no faith, correct? Amen. I mean, you showed some faith already today. You got up this morning and you showed faith for whatever reason. You're like, I'm going to church today. 
God's got something for me. That's a little faith. You got a Bible open or a Bible app open. That's a little bit of faith. You got counseling for your marriage. That's a little bit of faith. You got your teenager signed up for Wake Weekend. That's a little bit of faith. You're thinking about, hey, baby, we ought to maybe think about getting in a connect group. That's a little bit of faith. That's a little bit of faith. But if it's a mountain, you're still just going to be coping and not hoping. What we're looking for and what we want to have today is not some massive, awesome, flexing kind of faith. That's not even what's described there. He actually says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, and I meant to bring them out here, I can't tell you how small these things are. They're like tiny. It took me like two weeks to figure out what's the difference between a little faith and, and mustard seed faith, because they both look very small to me. And obviously, though, in the story, mountain moving faith, mustard seed faith is small, and this is indicative of the father's faith. What'd the father do? He took that itty little bit of faith, put it in a powerful, resurrected Christ. Utterly dependent, utterly desperate, brought it to Jesus and cried out for help. So those are the two things we're going to do today. Number one, I'm going to challenge you. Hey, we got we to bring whatever that is, okay? Whatever this is right here. You know what it is? I'm praying the Holy Spirit's already told you what that is. All right? I don't need, I don't need to give you a huge list. You've probably got it. It says... In the story, bring him to me. Bring him to me. Again, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, hey, your son is healed. And boom, he would have been healed. He wants the man to do something. And you see that in a bunch of other stories. Take up your mat and walk. He goes down and he takes up some mud and he heals the guy's eye. Something tangible. He takes the loaves and fishes to feed 5,000. He didn't need the loaves and fishes. He just took what we had and said, I'm taking your little faith and I'm going to do something great with it. And so today, what it is, is you take this little rock, you're like, ah, this is kind of stupid. It's kind of corny. And, you know, but that's, that's where you are right now. You got all your stuff together. You got your junk together. The rest of us need this. And so what do you do? So you just take, the, take it and you take that felt pen and you can just jot down. You're like, I don't really want to put down. I'm embarrassed by what I have. Then that's fine. Just put down something general or put down, put down U.S. That's not your country. That just means unspoken. Okay. Just unspoken. It's like, man, I got something so, but the purse, I don't want somebody to actually see it. It's not that you're showing awesome faith. This is small faith, but I'm saying I'm going to bring it to, I'm going to bring it to God. A verse you need to have memorized is Psalm 50, verse 15. Psalm 50, verse 15 says this, call upon me, call upon me. That means call out to God. God's inviting us. Call upon me in the day of trouble. In the day of trouble. Call upon me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you and you in turn will glorify me. So what are we doing? We're saying, God, I'm taking this not just to make my family better, not just to make my marriage happier. Ultimately, what I want to do is I want to have a marriage for the glory of God, okay? I want my son or my daughter to come back to you for the glory of God. I want a church that reaches out to the community. Why? For the glory of God. God, I want to live in freedom and not in shame. Why? But for the glory of God. That's what I've been made for. What do you have to do? You got to at least, you got to bring it to him. 
So here in a second, I'm going to ask you to do that. And all I'm going to say then is you just cry out to God for help. You're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. If the only thing you know to say is what the Father said, God, I do believe. I do believe. Help my unbelief. That is an awesome prayer. You're like, well, what would God think if I say I don't believe? What did he do with a guy? He didn't zap him. He didn't fry him like bacon. What did he do? He met him where he was. And God will meet you where you are. Honest prayer. God, I do believe you've saved me, but there's an area over here that I'm really struggling to trust you in. And even if you don't know how to pray, you don't have to necessarily pray for the whole solution, okay? Pray for, pray for a sign before the solution. Listen to this. I, I haven't learned this till like three years ago. You see, sometimes it's okay to say, it's okay to say, God, would you save my Let's say, would you save my mom? She's, I've been praying for her, but it's okay to pray for a sign. God, would you at least, just to help my faith, would you let me see maybe just a scintilla of interest from her about the book? God, would you, would you let me see my prodigal's friends withdraw from her? That you would strip away all the attraction of this world. Would the attraction of this world turn like sand into their mouths? It's okay to pray that. What we're praying is that God would bring, what's God's going to do? God's going to bring his power to bear on our lives. That's what we need. Why could the disciples not do anything? Because they were just doing it solo. Jesus up on a mountain. They already done some cool stuff. They're sitting there going, hey, well, you know, A, B, and C, boom, it didn't work. Same way. You've tried all your stuff. You've tried. You've tried to move the mountain. You've tried to move it, and it's not moving. And so God wants to take your desperation and have you come to him and say, God, this is for at least for the next six weeks. I am giving this over to you. Would you bring the tears back? And if you've got some promises, you can claim they're countless, all right? I love the fact that he says, you know what? The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth so that he could strongly support those whose hearts are his. You don't think God's going to, do you honestly think that you're going to actually pray to God today, worship God today, come and say, God, I'm putting this at the altar today, maybe even cry a few tears. Do you honestly think you're going to get up and later on this afternoon say, man, I really regret doing that? I will say I've never, ever, 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 ever hit my knees, cried out to God, made some kind of, this is what you want, and then got up later on and go, man, I so regret doing that. What you're saying is, God, would you take this mountain? I have ceased to hope. Would you open up my heart? I want to have faith to believe that you will do for me what you did for the man and the family in that story. And so what we need to do is we need to make the front of the church wet with the tears of God's people once again. You're like, I don't know the people that came with me. Who cares what they think? Who cares what they think? What you do, I'm going to invite you to do this. You just, even right now, you don't have to wait for me to go into a prayer right now. You're like, man, I'm going right there. You just take this little rock right here. Whatever campus, Hendersonville, you go ahead and get on up. Franklin, you go ahead and get on up. Arden, go ahead and get on up. Arden, you might have to do it back there. The rest of you just come up here and say, God, I'm going to pray. Pastors, you go ahead and come on up here as well. Pastors, come on up here. And as you come up here and pray, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As you pray, you might come up here, just put that rock in there and go right back to your seat. There'll be a song of worship, all right? It's a song we're going to sing probably three times.
throughout this series. It's a great song. It's about, you know what, whether, whether it's the mountain or whether it's the valley, I'm going to trust God. It's a song of worship, and worship builds faith. And so again, whether you're praying, whether you're coming up here, whether you put it there and you go back to your seat, when you get back to your seat, you say, oh, God, I'm worshiping right now. I will pray. Campus pastors, you will pray at the end of your service as well. A pastoral prayer over the church, over the campus, and then we will be finished. Pray with me. Father, right now we, uh, we confess the sin of just not praying anymore, not asking. You say we have not because we ask not. And so we're sorry and we agree that we've ceased to ask and to cry out in desperation for that mountain to move for the glory of God. And God, when we've asked, we've oftentimes we've asked with the wrong motives. You say we have not because we ask not. When we do ask, we ask amiss. We ask with the wrong motives. So God, cleanse our hearts and make a proper motive the glory of God. God, our prayers the next six weeks, you would move mountains for the glory of God, secondarily for the good of the people, but primarily for your name, the fame of your name to go throughout Western North Carolina. Break up the fallow ground of our heart. God, I don't even know if it's in context, but God, Isaiah 43 says, you will bring our sons and daughters from afar. And we by faith know it is not your will that our sons and daughters, our moms and dads would go into a Christless eternity. So right now, we claim the promise that you said it is your desire that every person turn and repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God, do it, God, do it, God. Save the families for the glory of God through the name, the person, the power, and the cross of Jesus. God, for some marriages in here that are just terrible right now, hopeless right now, want to throw in the towel. God, restore some hope that, you know what, for the glory of God, this is a covenant we are in. God, put some people around them that would encourage and exhort and intercede and pray for them. God, I pray even we'd see some renewal of vows here in a couple of months to say, you know what? God turned the ship. He changed the legacy of our family as we just came to him innocently in our desperation. Father, we love you. We uh, don't have the words to say thank you like we should. Got to pray that the song that we are kind of learning would become an anthem in our church, not just for six weeks, but from now on. We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.